Support for this podcast is provided by 360 Coverage Pros. If you're in the market for professional liability insurance, then our sponsor, 360 Coverage Pros, has what you're looking for with their top-rated tax preparer and bookkeeper professional liability insurance. They offer flexible coverage options starting as low as $23.33 a month. You'll love their fast, easy, online application and instant proof of insurance. To get started, you can call them at 833-668-0037. That's 833-668-0037. Or visit 360coveragepros.com slash tax notes to apply online or book a free consultation. That's the number 360coveragepros.com slash tax notes. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, now hiring. On November 12th, IRS Commissioner Charles Reddig will depart as head of the agency when his term ends. From there, an acting commissioner appointed by President Biden will take his place. Although the acting commissioner will have the same authority as a Senate-confirmed one, the temporary nature of the position will lend itself to some uncertainty. And this comes as the agency is set to receive an additional $80 billion in funding from the Inflation Reduction Act. So what can we expect in this leadership transition? Joining me now to talk about this is Tax Notes reporter Jonathan Curry. Jonathan, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Now, we're coming up on the end of Charles Reddick's term, and we don't have a new commissioner nominee yet. Is that normal? Yeah, you know, it is normal for there to be a gap between when a confirmed commissioner's term ends and then a successor takes his or her place. I think there was about a seven-month gap between when Commissioner Reddick was nominated and then when he was actually confirmed. So that's not unusual. But what I think is unusual is that this $80 billion of extra funding for the IRS is such a big policy priority for the Biden administration that they've also known that this is coming. You know, that the IRS commissioner serves a fixed five-year rolling term. And so they knew that he was going to be stepping down November 12th. They've known since August that this $80 billion was basically guaranteed at this point. And so to not have someone lined up is turning a couple of heads and making people wonder what the Biden administration has been up to. So let's talk a bit more about this. You were on an earlier episode where we discussed this $80 billion in funding. Do we have any better sense of how that money is going to be spent? You know, I don't know that we have a much better sense. We do know pretty generally what the Biden administration wants the IRS to do with this. You know, they'd want them to basically improve things across the board. They want to get their IT systems more up to date. They want to improve taxpayer service by a lot. They want to dramatically boost enforcement of high income taxpayers and, and large and complex organizations, businesses, and things like that. So we've already known that that was going to happen. The big thing that we're going to be looking for is that the IRS is going to be releasing what they're calling an operational plan. That's going to be released six months from enactment, which puts it right around, I think, mid-February. And so the Treasury Department is working closely with the IRS on this. They're going to be helping them sort of sketch out for the next 10 years what projects to prioritize, benchmarks to set, timelines, and things like that. We should expect it to have a good amount of detail. I mean, there's going to be some, perhaps, you know, some fluidity to it, but that's going to be the big thing to watch for. And in the meantime, we're all kind of watching and waiting to see what they come up with for that. Do we have any sense of when we should see a a new commissioner nominee? I mean, hopefully soon. You know, I've I've been told uh, that the Biden administration has the candidate that they're just sort of, you know, doing the, the background vetting and things like that. 
you would expect them to to want to put someone out soon. But I don't know, even if they do announce someone, it, it could take a long time for that individual to be confirmed. And so in the meantime, there's going to be an acting commissioner holding down the fort. Now, I understand you recently talked to someone about this. Could you tell us about your guest and what you talked about? Yeah, so I had the privilege of speaking with Mark Everson from Alliant Group. He has had a long career in government. Most notably for us, he's a former IRS commissioner. He held that role from 2003 to 2007. He's also held various government roles during the Bush and Reagan administrations. He was an OMB. He was uh, working with immigration in that area as well. And he was also a Republican presidential candidate for a short spell in 2016. And you can imagine tax reform was one of his big policy priorities. So uh, Mark, I think, really was the perfect guest for this moment. You know, as we were just talking about, the IRS is really on the cusp of making some really huge organizational changes. And, you know, who better to weigh in on on this than someone who's been in that chair and had to make those decisions? So we talked about how the IRS should be spending this money, what they should prioritize, some of the challenges they're going to be facing, and and so much more. All right, let's go to that interview. <laughs> Well, Mark, it's great to have you here with us. We brought you to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, the next IRS commissioner, and really you're someone that's going to be greatly positioned to talk about this with us because you're a former IRS commissioner yourself. You know how this works. So to jump right into it, the IRS has $80 billion. They have extra $80 billion to spend. What are some challenges that you think the IRS is going to run into as they try to put this $80 billion to work? They already have a budget of about $13 billion a year. This adds up to a lot of extra money. So what do you think they're going to be facing? Well, there are a lot of issues here. First, they're starting from a poor position because the services had tremendous problems in terms of the manual, the issues requiring human intervention, processing returns, answering the phone calls. That's all well documented. Plus the real problem of data security, which is increasingly the subject of TIGDA reports, the inspector general and also, we all know about the ProPublica and the more recent data breaches. So, so the secretary, at least on the services issue, has said, hey, first thing you got to do is get IRS services right. I agree with that. They've also got to work on the data security. But while they do that, they've got to develop an implementation plan to build the agency. And that is easier said than done. It is harder, in my experience, to add to grow, if you will, than it is to maintain or contract. And particularly with a government agency that is controversial, not everybody wants to go work for the IRS. So getting good people and training them up and putting in the new systems, it's going to be a very significant task. So on that point about the hiring, I think that's a very important point to raise. Of course, we've all heard about 87,000 armed IRS agents. That's a bit misleading, to say the least. But to be fair, Treasury has said they want to hire 87,000 employees over the next 10 years with this money. What are some challenges you think that the IRS will face? I mean, they're looking to hire a whole range of employees, everything from customer service on the phone lines, processing paper tax returns, to top flight lawyers to handle these audits of complex partnerships and along with IT as well. Do you think that are all those areas going to be challenging to hire in or some more difficult than others? I think they all present unique problems. Anybody who's in business today knows that it's tough to find the right people. We have a, a shortage of workers right now for a variety of reasons. And I think that's, that's very true across accounting and tax in the private sector. And it's also, of course, true for the IRS. They've struggled to bring on people 
that they had authority to bring on in the, uh, with the COVID relief funds. So yes, I think this will be hard. And what I would say to you, Jonathan, is that I'd rather see the service get this right and hire three good people than hire three good people and a couple of average folks and, and somebody who's going to cause them problems. Because if they end up hiring people who don't understand what they're doing or who are an ill fit and overreach, that's going to cause, in this environment of great scrutiny of the IRS, it's going to cause more problems than it's worth. So do this right, do it deliberately. Yeah, and it sounds like it's just a, a tough labor market overall. So perhaps perhaps the IRS might be crossing its fingers, hoping for a recession, maybe to make it a little bit a little easier to hire. Well, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know that that's the case, but for sure they have a real challenge. You've actually been a little bit critical of the amount of funding. You've always you've been pushing for more funding for the IRS. But I think, if I recall correctly, you've been critical of both of the total amount and also the way it's kind of divvied up. Yes, that is true. I, For the reasons we really just articulated, I didn't favor a doubling of the size of the agency, which was clearly contemplated when after the president spoke and then the Treasury issued its white paper rolling out the $80 billion justification. So I don't support something of that magnitude. I support 3 to 5% real growth. That means adjusted for inflation each year. I think they can absorb that, hire diligently, spend the money on the systems, and that would be healthy. And to your other point, yes, absolutely. The money is skewered way, way too much for enforcement. There's 14 times the amount of money provided for enforcement as for services. It's true a lot of the systems money will help improve services to taxpayers, but I still think that they could have done a better job in terms of splitting that. And and you see that the secretary has correctly challenged the service in its implementation plan, again, to give emphasis to taxpayer services, recognizing that there's some real controversy here. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. The lack of qualified candidates continues to cause issues in the profession. But progressive firms are empowering admin with tax automation software to do the heavy lifting. The SafeSend suite will save your admin staff hours on assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, saving money, and making staff happier. And your staff deserve the sweet life this coming busy season. Schedule a demo to experience this workflow automation solution for yourself at SafeSend.com. That's SafeSend.com. Now, let's say that you were back in the commissioner's spot, you know, at this very moment, what would you sort of pick out as, as the biggest priorities for the IRS? You know, they have $80 billion extra to spend, but they also have, you know, a normal agency to run, filing season coming up. Where do you think things rank in terms of critical importance? Well, right now, they absolutely have to clear the backlogs. And that includes the correspondence, because as practitioners know, there have been lots of notices issued. People are confused. And until you clear the backlogs, including the correspondence, you're still going to have untoward volumes of people are calling in because they, they don't know what's happening. So you've got to get that all corrected and fast. And what I would do there is uh, they've done a good job of getting extra people to work who've been done submissions processing in the past. But I would assign uh, tag teams or teams of regular auditors and collections people ship them out to the uh, service processing centers and have them work on two to three week 
rotating sort of duties, if you will, and let go some of the other things that they're doing, which are discretionary. They've got to get this backlog cleared. The other thing is the data security that I mentioned before. That's a terrible problem. It's a great concern to to everybody. And before they spend these billions of dollars on new systems, I think the American people in the Congress are entitled to an explanation of what happened with the ProPublica leak. Was it inside? Was it contractors? They're going to go out and have a lot more contractors doing many, many things. We better understand that that they're doing it right. And if if you follow this, Jonathan, TIGDA has just issued a series of reports criticizing the IT security issues. So this is going to be a continuing focus. They've got to do those two things first, and then they really need to focus on the implementation plan in terms of building up the infrastructure making sure they have enough folks on the hiring side, making sure the procurement staff is staffed appropriately. And if you build up the infrastructure side, this multi-year plan will unfold with uh, a lot fewer problems, if you will. No, I think you're absolutely right that data security will continue to be a a big focus. I mean, Republicans have certainly made it a key focus uh, at hearings and press releases all year long, and that's showing no signs of letting up. And as the IRS is spending a lot of extra money, as you said, to expand all this, that's going to draw a lot of scrutiny, I think. Now, so in terms of how soon we can expect to see the effects of this extra $80 billion being put to use, this money is going to a lot of different things, going to boost enforcement, it's going for services, improving taxpayer service, and modernizing the sort of IT infrastructure of the entire IRS. How soon do you think we should expect to see that take effect? I think you'll see, because the secretary is giving priority to certain things, I think you'll see some impact, obviously, on the service side and hopefully on the data security side sooner in terms of of those sides. But hiring people and training them, that takes a long time. And and I know the service is quite properly looking at trying to bring in mid-career professionals from companies or from CPA firms to do some of the work that you alluded to before, the more sophisticated audits or a lot of the complexity in the international area. But Just because somebody understands the code, it takes a long time to understand the procedures in government and the rules of the road in terms of dealing with taxpayers at the IRS. So you don't just hire somebody, which takes time on on its own, and they don't just head out there and, and do the job properly on day one. And the other point on this is if you're a group leader in, I live down in Mississippi, but if you're, they've got a small office in Gulfport, if you're in Gulfport there, if you're training two new people in your group, that makes you less productive. You're not doing as much in terms of your day-to-day audits or collections, whatever it is. So there may be actually a deterioration in some of their numbers on the enforcement side, if you will, as they hire and train up. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch for and see if that materializes. It's interesting too, on the modernization side, there was a top IRS official on the, who handled a lot of the IT modernization issues. And he recently, you know, he said he's excited to have all this money at sort of at his disposal. Uh, he also described it as a quote, waking nightmare every morning when he when he has to sort of get back to it because it, it's just a lot of expectation over what the IRS will be able to accomplish. And he was somewhat trying to temper expectations of, okay, you know, it'll take some time. It, it's interesting to see the view from the inside the IRS on that. Well, I think that gets to the overall challenge for the IRS right now, which is To some degree, there has been a woe is me mentality. We can't do anything because we don't have enough money. And that has served as an explanation that 
has occasionally been offered up to the Congress or the taxpayer for why things aren't better. Well, <laughs> that, that, that explanation is now gone. So that, that's a different reality. And one of the things they really need to do here is communicate openly and, and regularly with the stakeholders about what they're doing and why certain things, as we just discussed, will take time before you'll see certain improvements. And that's what they've got to do because the expectations are higher. Yeah, certainly. Another thing, too, the Republicans have made it a pretty, especially with midterm elections coming up, the IRS, this extra funding for the IRS, rolling that back has become quite a key part of the Republican platform going into the the election here. Say you were back again in the IRS commissioner hot seat. How does the threat of this extra funding being rolled back in the near future, I mean, would that affect the plans you put into place now? Would you try to sort of be more cautious in what you try to set out to do? Or do you think you just got to take what you have and deal with things as they come? Well, I think what you do is, at least what I did in the job was you try to treat both sides equally. I I always felt that I served the country best and and frankly served the president who appointed me, George W. Bush, best if I called the shots right down the middle. Because in the end, um, administrations, uh, it sticks to the administration if there are problems at the IRS. So, So what you want to do is call it right down the middle. And, and communicate effectively with both sides of the aisle. And you want both sides of the aisle to believe and, and conclude that you're telling them the same thing. If you do that, then you just follow the law. I think you have to execute the law as written, and that money is there. So yes, they should be developing the plans. They should proceed. They shouldn't pull their punches for political reasons. And then, of course, you're right. You do have to be always thinking, well, what happens if there's a change here or there? But this is way premature. We haven't had the buyout elections yet, and we're a long way from any changes taking place of that to stripping out that money, I think. So that money's there. That's a, it's a sea change for the IRS, and they need to go forward. Uh, they've got an implementation plan deadline in February. Develop that plan. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. Ranked number one on the West Coast and number five nationwide, this top-ranked innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-to-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information, and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. The $80 billion is coming in at an interesting time. IRS Commissioner Charles Reddick, he is set to step down. His term expires on November 12th, and there will be an acting commissioner to fill his shoes until a confirmed commissioner can come along. But that could be quite a bit of time. And this is a crucial time, you know, the very beginning of this new funding coming, you know, into the IRS's hands, and they're trying to decide how they want to spend it. So, so Mark, I mean, are you surprised, one, that we don't have a nominee lined up or publicly announced yet? And then two, what kind of person should this nominee be? Yes, it's it's very unfortunate that there's not a nominee who's already in the midst or going through the confirmation 
process uh, because the individual who's going to run this for the next four or five years and own the performance of the agency, both in terms of its operations and building up the capabilities through the new funding, that person should be participating in the development of the implementation plan. It's just wrong to have them come in and take a look afterwards and execute against it. It won't, that's not an effective way to do things. And the same thing is true. The IRS just issued a strategic plan a few months ago. That's way out of sequence. The new commissioner, he or she should be the one who is developing that and getting the, the proper approval of it. So, so yes, you're right. It's very unfortunate that the administration hasn't moved by this time to put in place someone to oversee this agency. You know, I feel strongly, and some of my colleagues, former commissioners, we just issued a statement recently on this saying they need to move promptly, but also that to your question about what kind of person, I think we feel that you need someone who's had major management experience uh, delivering a major growth and transformation of a, in a complex situation, because the IRS is complex. There is a tension between the service mission and the enforcement mission, and that's going to be difficult because of the skewing of the funding that we talked about earlier. So yes, there's a lot to do that the person who comes in I think should have that experience. You're not going to find a total matchup, Jonathan, but experience doing something like that, either acquisitions in the corporate area, integrating big companies, uh, but also the system side. I think it's helpful. You don't have to be an IT person, but very comfortable with overseeing big IT projects because there's going to be a lot of transformation at the IRS on this. The last thing that I would emphasize in particular is it's not a job for the bashful. I testified 50 times before Congress. And I can tell you, they were never trying to make me look good. That's not, it's not what they don't go home. Chuck Grassley didn't go home to Iowa and say, well, I really made the, I told the IRS commissioner Everson what a great job he was doing. That's not what happens. And uh, when they're running for reelection, but the, the oversight is important. I always felt that I did a better job because of the preparation and the surfacing of the issues that took place in the congressional testimony, the interaction with, with the Hill. So that is important, but it's not easy. And the person who takes on this assignment needs to be comfortable with that situation, that it is that it is unpleasant at times. You've got to be able to fight for your position within the administration in terms of issues that take place with the Treasury Department or uh, the White House. And then you've got to be able to stand up and speak, not for IRS employees, not for just the agency, but you have to speak about the entire tax system and explain it to the country, to the Congress, to the media, to trade groups. It all depends, but you've got to be comfortable in that public space, if you will. It's not a backroom job. Do you anticipate it's going to be a contentious confirmation process? This is a presidential appointed but Senate confirmed position. So the president will be able to you know, make his pick and then Senate has to vote to confirm it. Do you anticipate it'll be contentious or do you think both parties are going to be equally interested in getting someone confirmed you know, at the top as soon as possible? Well, I would hope that both parties will be thorough in their examination of the nominee but I do believe, I, I, I don't think it'll be contentious. I think there'll be a lot of 
thanking the nominee for willing being willing to take this on. But I do also think there will be markers that will be put down. There will be questions that will be asked to the nominee, particularly in this area, like are there going to be more audits of 400,000 people earning 400,000 or, or less, which the administration's been incredibly vague on this. The president talked about this in April of 21, and that was for tax policy, you know, legislation. And it jumped the rails to where it then became, as, as it heated up in, the, in these election contests, it became sort of, oh, no, 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 we're not going to increase audits. But from historic levels, the words were very vague. I can tell you that audits of individuals were almost five times as great when I was at the IRS my last year there in fiscal 2006 as they were in 2019. That leaves a lot of space for increased audits from where they've been in recent years, but still complying with that directive. So I'm sure the nominee is going to get questions are, where are you on this? What does this mean? And, and, there, and there, will be, there will be efforts, as there always are, with, with senators to extract certain positions from the nominee. So what it'll come down to a lot will be, who will have the Senate? Will, will the Democrats still have the Senate? In which case, I would think it would be relatively smoother, but it will be obviously a little more rough and tumble if the Republicans prevail on November 8th. Now, this this $80 billion is not just about keeping the lights on at the IRS, as we talked about. It's really envisioning transforming the agency in big ways in really just about every area. Treasury, you know, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has already suggested that they want to be closely involved in shaping this. I'm curious, is that a good thing? Should the next IRS commissioner be on guard about trying to maintain some degree of independence from Treasury? Or is it necessary that Treasury is going to be having its hand on this pretty tightly? I believe that, you know, the IRS is accountable as a part of the Treasury Department to the secretary, of course, and the deputy secretary. But I, I am very concerned about increasing sort of how closely held the agency is and also the White House. If you go back to the Trump administration, I wrote on this at the time. They reversed ground, which going back to the Reagan administration, where the White House, OMB, which I came from, by the way, it did not for decades have a role in the writing of tax regulations. Those were done at Treasury and the IRS. And uh, the Trump administration reversed that, bringing the tax regs into the White House. That's a concern to me. And then they appointed an acting commissioner after John Koskinen completed his term, who was also a senior treasury official. And, and I'm not suggesting there were any particular problems, but I think it's a, it's a bad precedent. I think that the service, it's, it's like the CIA or the FBI, it's viewed by the American people as having to be absolutely nonpartisan. And it has operated with a degree of independence. And I think that comes to this issue now. If the commissioner is just taking instruction from the treasury department, on all these issues, there's just a potential for meddling. I mean, and it's already changed. The piece of the Treasury Department that's been most closely associated with with this initiative is the Office of Economic Policy, and that's totally unprecedented. And some people have written that they've been supervising the IRS. That's not a good thing. You, you need the IRS to be operating independently, but held accountable by the administration and also by the Congress. I felt I was held accountable by Grassley and Baucus and uh, Bill Thomas and Charlie Rangel, too. I mean, they asked very 
probing questions and got answers. So I think it can be done. But yeah, no, to your point, I am concerned that especially with all this, it's it's already become too political in terms of tax administration has become much more visible as an issue in the elections. And that's not good for tax administration. It really is not. So as we talked about earlier, there's going to be an acting IRS commissioner filling that role for at least a few months until a new commissioner is confirmed. So Mark, do you think that's going to be a problem for the agency? Are they going to have trouble defending? Does it pose any trouble for the agency as it tries to defend its interests or unpack these plans? And What's your take on that? Acting commissioners it's frequently what happens when a commissioner completes his or her term that you end up with an acting commissioner. And that's totally, totally normal, but it's difficult at this particular moment. The way I look at an acting commissioner, it's sort of, look, we're in the postseason in baseball right now. And the acting commissioner is like the closer who comes in and is trying to keep things really in check. Very important. And you can count on the acting commissioner to get a lot of things done. But the trajectory of a baseball game is usually set by the starters. And that's more like the confirmed commissioner. And that's where you are right now. We got to get started on the implementation of this new law. So the person who's going to see it through and have the authority to execute it is got to be in place. The confirmed commissioner has the confidence of the president and the treasury secretary and a little more latitude to get things done. The acting commissioner, he or she, just by definition, is going to be a little more cautious and perhaps too cautious in how they build things up and get things done. So, yeah, I think it's a normal occurrence, but I I think it's unfortunate in this instance that there's going to be what would seem to be a fairly significant gap before you get a confirmed commissioner in, in the chair. Yeah. Okay. And we'll conclude with this, Mark, sort of the top challenges that you would identify for the, that the next commissioner is going to be facing. Well, I think obviously coming back to where we started, they've got to get the services better and the data security better. That's an absolute. Then the second thing is the commissioner has got to oversee the development of this implementation plan and build up the infrastructure while maintaining the operations. The third thing is I think relationships with practitioners have been strained in recent years. This is a fresh start. It's a good a good time to sort of, I guess, just take a fresh look at how the government is interacting with practitioners because you really have three elements, uh, Jonathan, in the tax system. You've got the government, you've got taxpayers, and you have practitioners, and they, they play an essential role. And last thing I would say, my guidance sir, to a new commissioner would be this point you just sort of talked about, which is make sure that you've got appropriate degree of independence and latitude as you go forward in terms of within the administration and get the respect to both sides of the aisle. You have to earn the respect to both sides of the aisle so that you've got the ability to keep the agency respected and viewed as nonpartisan by the American people. Very good. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. There's a lot to watch in the coming months. It'll be very interesting. Thanks for having me, sir. Now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, four professors examine if a deed qualifies as a contemporaneous written acknowledgement. Anthony Kim explores the tax implications for taxpayers who had their Paycheck Protection Program loans forgiven, including potential legal jeopardy. In Tax Notes State, 
Joseph Rolada, and Ian Herbert examine the trend of state attorneys general getting increasingly involved in tax enforcement. Shannon Gemiolo and Ian Redpath explain the updated standards for tax services recently proposed by the AICPA. In Tax Notes International, Saul Pachado and Jeffrey Cadet argue for unitary taxation in the form of formulary apportionment. Three Fleek, Gock, Schomburg practitioners examine changes in the German tax treatment of employee secondments over the last 20 years. In Featured Analysis, Roxanne Bland examines taxing income in the digital world. And finally, on the Opinions page, Carrie Brandon Elliott explains how tax is central to the ESG concept, even though it is not reflected in the acronym. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com slash podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.